as soon as all this stuff is over, fans in the stands are going to be nuts, and that's one of those guys that they are going to love. Sounds good. So why don't we start off with our all-star predictions. I'll go through what we thought the, the teams would do and how we assumed this, this simulation would play out based on the teams. And then, Brett, you can dive into how the simulation actually played out. Unfortunately, because of COVID, we weren't actually able to go through the simulation together. So Brett's got all the simulation data. I've got all the prediction data. So we'll break it down that way. So coming into this, I we both assumed that the North would beat the East 4-2. to two. We thought that the East's defense and the goalie just weren't quite strong enough to keep up with the North offense. Between McDavid and Matthews and Dreisaitl and Marner, the elite offense there just would overpower a lot of the goaltending that the East had with Rask. And then the East defense just wasn't quite as strong as all of the other divisions, really. I think all the other divisions had really elite defense, and the East just didn't quite have that. With Provorov and McAvoy, Letty and Carlson, and then Smith and Latang, they're a solid defensive core, but they're not quite as good as, say, like I mean, the West had, our I'd say, our strongest defensive core with Krug and Doughty and... Chitron and Girard. So we had the North coming out on top, four to two against the East, and we had the Central beating the West. Western Division had a very defense-focused team. They had a lot of playmakers and not a whole lot of high-end scoring talent. Whereas the Central Division was a little more well balanced between defense and offense, and I think that's what will come into play when we do this simulation. So I've got the Central beating the West 4-3, to three, going to seven games. And then in our All-Star Final, that would pin the Central versus the North. And I've got the North coming out on top, simply because of the elite caliber scoring skills that the North has in their offense. I think defensively, they match up pretty well. Goaltenders, Hellebuck and Vasilevsky. They're, I mean, you could argue that Vasilevsky is the better goalie, but I think they're pretty pretty on par with each other. But I think the scoring talent that we have on the first two lines of the North team will overpower the defense and the goalie in Central. So I think the North are going to take that in seven. So that I guess that's our, our final prediction will be the North is going to be the ultimate all-star team in the NHL this year. So I'm going to just go over some stats quick. Uh, starting off with Hellebuck. He had a great playoffs. Ended up with a 
928 save percentage and a 2.29 goals against average to lead the All-Star team, followed by Vasilevsky and then Fleury. Obviously, the uh, goals against average and save percentages are a little low, but like we said, these are some high-powered offenses. And I was actually really surprised with the numbers that Playbox managed to put up. The entire All-Star playoffs uh, was led in points by Jonathan Huberto and Patrick Kane with both 18 points. That was 18 points in 12 games, though, so it's, no, it's worth noting that in 10 games, Dreisaitl managed to put up 14 points. And then we're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive into what went on in the series. So, like I was saying, unlike our prediction, the North ended up sweeping the East. And the West had a fairly hard fought, a pretty close series uh, against the Central. But they ended up finishing it 4-2 with a win in overtime in the sixth game. It was pretty close to being a seven-game series, like we said. And then moving on to the finals, the North wins 4-2 against the Central. The Central's top line really did carry their offense, but they just didn't have the depth throughout the lineup that the North had. Like I was saying in the stats, Huberto and Kane were right at the top of the scoring for the entire tournament. But after that, it was all North teams. And I think there's something to be said about that. The North played less games and all their big players were in the top 10 in scoring. So they were just getting scoring from everywhere, which is what we predicted. They have quite the high powered offense on that team. And being backstopped by the tournament's best goaltender, uh, they ended up coming out on top. So. I think we did pretty good with our predictions. Um, obviously, it didn't go to Game 7 as much as we had thought, but the North did come out on top. And being Leafs fans and really paying attention to North Division this year, I can't say I'm surprised that that's how the simulation worked out. I'm a little bit surprised. Like I, I think we both expected the North to do really well, and I, I predicted the North to win, but I also... I wasn't sure that they would win to the extent that they did. I really thought the Central would give them more of a fight. Yeah, honestly, uh, we do a, a simulation tournament between a couple buddies where we play through a season all the time. Uh, we do a fantasy draft, and we all pick a team in the same division and, and play off. So I've seen how that works out a lot of times, and it seems like the older teams uh, – tend to do better. They have more developed stats where some of the other guys have potential. So I really thought the Central might end up coming out on top. They have a lot of uh, fully developed players on their lineup. So that their players have a lot of the good underlying stats in NHL 21. So I was worried that they might make our prediction look bad. And they did managed to walk all over the West in the first couple games. I'm glad to see that we are pretty good with our prediction and it did end up being the North. Yeah, and I think um, you mentioned how like most of the North players were in the top of point scoring for the tournament. 
I think that goes to show how Rask just isn't quite as good of a goalie as he used to be. Like, because I'm sure a lot of those points would have come in that series against the East. And the East defense yeah. with Rask and the net behind them just kind of opens up the East for an onslaught of scoring from the North. And I think that's that's what we saw um, yeah. with the stats. Yeah, and you saw a lot of scoring throughout their lineup. Like, like I said, it looked like everybody in the North was picking up points. And even though they played quite a bit less games, they dominated the the leaderboards as far as points. So there you have it. I guess that wraps up our five-part series of what division is the best in the NHL right now. Based on all of the data that we have from NHL 21, if you can call that data, the North is the best. I'll be honest, I think that might be skewed a little bit just because of the fact that the NHL games tend to pad the stats of the high-end players a little bit in the McDavid, Matthews, you could argue Goudreau, a lot of those those top-line players in the NHL games end up with a slightly higher score than they maybe would in reality. So I, I would argue that maybe it's not the most accurate, but I'm still happy that the North came out on top. Yeah, it's obviously the best we can do, and I don't think we're the only ones using NHL 21 as a fun little simulation. So it's good to have kind of closure to what was actually a really cool segment. And given COVID, we might not really be able to do this ever again. So I think we should just uh, take it and roll with it. It's going to be an interesting rest of the North Division. It's a real tight race in real life. So. Yep, and it's getting we might as well take it in. <laughs> and I, I can't see that stopping outside of last night. Calgary has really come around, and Vancouver's looking more competitive. It's going to continue to get tighter and tighter. It's, it's not going to get any easier from here on out. And honestly, I don't think there's any team in that division that you're like, that's the team I want to play in the first round of playoffs. I think it's a really tight division, and there's so many great players that it could go any way any night. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's looking it's looking like a dangerous division, and with the trade deadline fast approaching, I'm not going to be surprised if a lot of Canadian teams are looking at improving their lineup because almost the entire division, aside from Ottawa, is still in the playoff race and is still pushing to make it past that the first two rounds in Canada. And I feel like uh, despite the tight division, everyone thinks that if they get out of the Canadian division, anything can happen. So all the teams that believe they have a shot in playoffs are going to attempt to put themselves in a position to win. I also think the Canadian teams just tend to have a little more revenue coming in as far as hockey being huge in Canada, so maybe they're more willing to spend in a year like this where some of the other divisions in the U.S., like I can't see um, Nashville or a team like that, you know, really trying to make a go of it this year, not that they're in the position to, but you know what I mean, a smaller market team in a not necessarily hockey crazy market isn't going to go all in on a season where 
There's no fans in the building. No. There is one crazy stat that I wanted to point out because you're the big push to have Dustin Brown on the West team. And uh, Dustin Brown only took four shots and had two goals. So he <laughs> shot at 50%. So that's quite the crazy stat when yeah. the next highest player shot at 23%. Dustin Brown was shooting at 50% in the All-Star game playoffs. I think the LA Kings would love that, but I think those days are long gone as far as Dustin Brown goes. Yeah, I would say so. So going from the final segment of our five-part series looking at the NHL, let's transition to the latter half of our two-part series, taking a look at the Toronto Blue Jays and what they have to offer this year. We're really going to dive into some of the batters that the Jays have and the fielding ability that comes along with these players. Brett and I have each taken a look at a few players on the lineup, and we're going to, similar to what we did with the pitching, just highlight some of their stats and what they can bring to this team. Brett, who do you you have as your first player? So I'm going to just run with it right away and, and start with George Springer. I think everyone was super excited when the Jays got him. A lot of people didn't believe the Jays could get him. I think it was well known, though, that in a COVID-type season, a company like Rogers has pretty deep pockets, so they were maybe more willing to make a big splash. Obviously, there has been a big hole in the outfield, and George Springer looks like he's going to fill that, especially with the offense he brings and the the elite-level talent he's had. He's going to be a huge part in the development of all these young players that the Jays have. I think you're going to see more of his impact uh, end up being what he did to the players that were around him. I think he's going to bring exactly what everyone expects him to bring on the field. But I think a guy with that elite level talent and the way he carries himself, I think he's going to have a big impact on all the young players with the Blue Jays. And a lot of those guys have the ability to be stars in the future. So it's great to get a guy like this have him come in and really have an impact on the team. It looks like he's probably going to lead off, which was something the Jays really struggled with over the past couple years. And that's super exciting to have a guy who who fits that role and can really have that impact. It's important to start the game on the right foot. It's important to have a guy who can really look at what the pitcher's throwing and relate that back to the dugout. I think George Springer's going to have a lot of impact outside of his offense. And I'm pretty sure he's going to bring a high-level amount of offense as well. So this Jays team is going to be able to hit the ball. That's one thing I know for sure. They definitely will. And, and I agree with that completely. That I think his, his impact will be felt further than just his bat. His impact will be felt across the lineup in his, his influence on, on all the young guys. Another guy that I hope has a similar influence that the Jays got in the offseason is Marcus Simeon. And I want to highlight him because he's a guy that I watch a few of his press conferences and he has openly said coming to the Jays, he wants to be able to help complement these younger players and help push their game forward. He's a 30-year-old guy. He's a two-time Golden Glove finalist, an AL East MVP candidate. He's a really strong defensive player. His bat isn't the strongest in the world, but it's still solid. Like he's, he's he's a contact hitter. He's not a power hitter. 
but he where where his impact will be felt is on the field defensively i think he's proven himself to be a really skilled guy at shortstop and he's coming into the jays said okay i'm willing to move away from shortstop let bichette have his turn at shortstop and i'll move into second base so that he can complement the young guys and help improve their game even more and i think we can't say enough how important that is in the development of a young player's career we've seen it time and time again in all sports where you have these mature players coming to teams and mentoring the young guys and teaching them the ropes and really showing them how to win games not just play games really well and that's i think marcus simeon will be a difference maker same with similar to george springer in that sense i think it's important that you brought up too that he's a contact hitter not everyone's going to hit home runs, but if you're going to take advantage of the power that the Blue Jays have in this lineup, you're going to need a guy that can get on base and make some of those home runs count. And I think there are going to be a lot of home runs hit by the Blue Jays this year. So the reality is taking advantage and making sure guys are on base when that happens. And he's the perfect player to do that. Uh, It'll be great if he can have that kind of impact. He's also coming off two seasons ago where he was pretty highly sought after and was in the conversation uh, as an elite level player and he's looking to return to that form. I think being with the Jays and not being necessarily the biggest star or having all the media pressure is going to be huge. He's going to be able to go out there and play baseball and be a leader and I think older players tend to sometimes relish that role. Let the young guys have the headlines. Let me just go out there and play baseball and like you said listening to Marcus Simeon talk sounds like that's what he wants to do he wants to go out and play baseball and if that's what he decides to do he's gonna rival George Springer the biggest signing for this year obviously we have George Springer long term but the Jays could really make some noise with the amount of uh, lack of spending within the division and if he can come in and do what people believe he can do as long as last year was just a one-off, he's going to be a great player and he can have a big impact on their aspirations to be a playoff team this year. Well, and there's something to be said about Simeon too in the fact that he was with Oakland as a staple of their lineup for six years during a period of transition where Oakland was very much turning over players like they were one year in and out moving players all the time and Simeon was the kind of guy that just that they weren't willing to move it wasn't until this year that he was able to transition or or willing to transition out of Oakville as well or Oakland sorry (laughs) yeah I I think like uh, that's just another vet that really insulates all these young players and I'm excited to see the impact he can have he also provides a little bit of insurance uh, if Bo Bruchette ever falters at shortstop. You have a guy who, who's been there long-term and who could play there if you need. Uh, Bo Bichette has got injured a little bit, so I think it's great to have a guy that you think uh, can really move around the infield. The Blue Jays are looking for players that can move around and play multiple positions and have a big impact, and he definitely fits that mold perfectly. Um, so actually, I, I took a guy who I really just love his story. I'm going to talk a little bit about Alejandro Kirk as a guy who was a 
Tommy myself, I kind of love seeing the guy out there. He's having a great time playing baseball. He smacks the ball around. It's going to be on him to force the Blue Jays to put him in the lineup. Obviously, uh, there's not really a need to rush him. They have some options at catcher, but he's really doing a good job forcing their hand right now. He's having a great spring training. He's making a lot of contact. He seems to have good control on where he puts the ball. He also has the power. Uh, it just seems like a guy that Blue Jays fans are going to fall in love with. I think you're going to see a lot of Alejandro Kirk jerseys in the stands if he can stick around with the Jays long term. I obviously don't know what their plan is with with that right now, but he looks like that kind of guy. You love to see the the younger guys coming up through their through the system and forcing the team's hand that to make them have to put him in the lineup. And I hope that that's the case this year, that he's able to make his entrance. And I think there's there's a good chance that he will be because the fact of the matter is we're still in a COVID season this year. That's what it comes down to. There's probably going to be players out, which as much as that sucks for the team, it opens up lineup spots for these young guys to come. And even if they don't blow the team away, it gives them that experience in the majors to help develop them even further so that next year or the year after he can come into that team and be a lock to be on the, in the lineup. Yeah. I think the Jays also have a little bit of an issue at catcher. I think they love Danny Jansen defensively, but honestly you look for some offense out of your catcher and he just hasn't really shown that. So I think it's up to Alejandro Kirk to show that he can be a major league catcher for the majority of the year and be a starter and be in the lineup a lot because he has some intangibles that Danny Jansen doesn't have. So if he can bring up that defensive game and really have an impact for the Blue Jays behind the plate, he already has the offensive skills to have an impact at the plate. You said you, you relate to the fact that he has a little bit of a tummy. My next pick is another guy with a little bit of a tummy on him. And I love him for that, too. Um, and that's Rowdy Telez. He's been on the team on and off for the past, I think, two years now. Last year was his first uh, full season with as a J, even though it wasn't actually a full season. But his first entire major league season. And he's already being called the player with the hardest hit in the league. This guy can crush the ball. The problem is a lot of times he swings for the fences. So I think that's something we're really going to see him work on this year. It's something that that I know he was working on is just improving his contact on the ball and improving improving his eye at the plate so that he's not just swinging at every pitch. He's able to track the ball in better and and take balls and hit when he knows that it's a pitch that he can hit out of the park, then he swings rather than swinging at everything that's thrown at him, which he's done in the past few years. He's a fun player to watch. Loved going to the games when he's playing and you get the let's get rowdy chance going. I think he's another player that the fans can really get behind. It's just that he's a player that can be frustrating to watch when he strikes out a lot. So I'm hoping to see the, see him really work on that this year and improve his 
his batting as a whole. And I think he's going to be in the DH position this year. So he'll have lots of time to work on hitting. So I think the one thing about Roddy Telez that you missed, and I'm pretty sure this is right. I'm sure that I'm going to find out that I'm wrong maybe, but I'm pretty sure he's the only lefty hitter we have uh, that looks like he's going to be in the lineup consistently this year. And that is big. Uh, the Jays have had a really hard time with lefties that can hit over the past few seasons. And obviously they're a bit of a commodity in the league, so you can't just go out and get one. And like you were saying, he's, he's too much fun to watch. He's a little bit streaky, but when he's on, you're like, okay, he can make something happen every time he goes to the plate. It was quite the revelation last year to, to see that even when it looked like someone was going to be able to feel the ball that he hit, that sometimes he just has that power that makes the ball hard to handle. You feel like it could pop out. You feel like you can make something out of any play that he makes contact with the ball. So I think that's a great guy for the Jays to have. And again, he's another one of those guys where you just love his body language. He looks like he's having a great time. Just one of those guys that the fans can really get behind. And as soon as all this stuff is over, fans in the stands are going to be nuts. And that's one of those guys that they are going to love. One of the last players I'm going to talk about is Vladdy. I think we've all heard a lot about him this year. His weight loss is obviously huge. Uh, he's lost somewhere between 40 and 50 pounds. That's a lot of weight, especially in one off season, to take off. And all you heard was, oh, is he going to be able to hit the ball, blah, blah. And you've seen this year in spring training that he is absolutely smacking the ball all over the field. He's making a lot of contact, and he's making it look a lot easier than he did before. I'm honestly really impressed with how different he's looked. He has a little bit more pep in his step, and he has a lot more maneuverability on the field. Obviously, he wants to be a third baseman. I'm still not really sold on that, but you've seen a huge step in him trying to be that guy with the weight loss. A lot of people are saying that you should force him to give it up right now. He turned 22 years old the other day, and I honestly think that it's ridiculous to take that carrot away from him if it motivates him this much. A lot of players in baseball are still considered prospects at 24, 25, and Vladdy's been in the lineup making an impact for a while now. So it's crazy to just say that because he's in the major leagues, he's not going to continue to develop. I'm not sure that I see him as a third baseman, but I also see how motivated he is to try to be a third baseman. And I think that it's just not something you should take away from a guy. If he's going to continue to push himself and push himself to have that impact, then you let him keep believing that he has a chance to be an everyday third baseman for you. Biggio plays third base a little bit right now. He looks like he's going to be the starter at third base for the most of this season. But he has a lot of maneuverability around the infield, so it just seems like the right idea to let Vladdy continue to pursue being a third baseman. He's so young. He's got so much talent. His bat really can't progress too much more. I don't, I don't want to put a damper on anything like that, but he has the elite hitting talent uh, when he wants to be that guy. 
I think there's got to be some room for development, and you're probably going to see that in his fielding ability since I don't really know where he's going to go offensively. I'm really looking forward to see him continue to pursue being a third baseman. I think he needs to continue to show his elite-level batting on a little more consistency as far as uh, making an impact every game. He really has the ability to be an elite-level hitter uh, for certain streaks throughout the year, and I think it is something that he's going to be able to do on a consistent basis. But I think it's time to see him make that next step and be that consistent elite bat that the Blue Jays brought him in to be. A lot of people last year were kind of frustrated. I think it's crazy to to give up on a guy who's already a major leaguer at his age and say that he's not going to get any better. I think he's going to get a lot better. I don't think he's going to necessarily hit with more power or have more control. He's just going to get more consistent. And him being consistent will be huge for the Blue Jays. So I really think that everyone needs to just tap the brakes. He's a huge prospect. He's already in the major leagues. He has all the intangibles. He's highly motivated. There's not really much to not like about the guy. And I know that when guys have such high ceilings, people get frustrated so quickly. But I think we need to just take a deep breath and let Vladdy be the player that he's going to be in the major leagues. And for everyone saying that there's no chance he can be a third baseman, I think that that's not necessarily true. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, like, baseball is a league where you see players play well into their 30s. It's not like hockey. It's not like basketball where it's a fast-paced game where you have to be on all the time. Baseball is a slower-paced game. You can play it to an older age You can and still have a high impact on the team. It's not like you have to change the game at 22. Like you, He's got lots of time to keep developing. And if they're able to develop him into a third baseman, then that just gives them options. And that you need that. Going down the stretch, you have injuries, you have exhaustion, you have everything. Baseball is a long season. Lots of things can happen. So to have a guy like Vladdy that could slot into third base if you need or um, play first or whatever, versatility is good to have. So there's no reason to shut that down. Let him keep developing and let him keep trying to be a third baseman. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. I'm kind of glad that you you see that the way that I'm seeing it. I've heard a lot of people with the opposite uh, thought process over the last little while listening to what other people and other uh, people watching the Jays have to say about it. But honestly... I don't think most of those people talk and have any idea what it would take to lose all that weight and put on that muscle that he put on in the off season. I think he's a, a hopefully motivated player who isn't just motivated with being a major leaguer. He's motivated with living up to what he was supposed to be as a prospect and being an elite level player in major league baseball and like I said earlier, just because he made the major leagues doesn't mean he can't get better. And he's got lots of time to learn at the major league level because he got there so fast. And as much as people might not think that that's the best place to learn, if he does learn, he's going to learn in the best league in the world. So he, 
He has the ability to be maybe even better than a guy who developed, but developed in a, a worse league or uh, developed somewhere that uh, where he was forced into that situation because they didn't have anyone better than him. I, if he wants to be a third baseman, he, at this point, he needs to take that away from Biggio. So it's a long road ahead, but if he can do it, he's going to be a hell of a third baseman. So you got to give him that opportunity. Yeah. So the last player that I have to highlight, I went off the roster. Well, on the roster, I went out of the lineup a little bit because I figured most of our listeners that watch, watch the Jays play or know anything about the Jays, they know Bichette, they know Grichik. They've seen Gurriel Jr. play. So I figured I'd find someone a little bit down the lineup a little bit and try and highlight what the Jays have outside of their main core. So I found Jonathan Davis. This is a guy that played with the Jays last year and got bumped out of his spot when they brought in Springer. So he's a center fielder, which so is Springer. So he's out of the lineup for now. But he's still going to be a role player on the team. He's a fast guy, and he's just getting faster. He spent the offseason training with an NFL running back coach to get that explosive takeoff so he can get off the base and just go to steal bases. In his AAA career, he stole 50 bases in 100 games, so stealing a base every other game is pretty good. I'll, I'll take that on our team. He's the kind of guy that can step in as a pinch runner. He's the kind of guy that, if you need him to, can play in the field because he was our fielder last year. And if we hadn't gotten Springer, then he probably would be our center fielder this year. And I think he has a real impact as a depth player on this team. Like I said, with... Uh, um, like He's I said, also a guy who might not start on the roster. Yeah. Yeah, like I had said with Kirk, this year is going to be weird. There's going to be people out with COVID. There's going to be injuries. There's going to be this, that, and the other, especially with the Jays maybe playing half of their season in Florida, half of it in Buffalo, and a few games in Toronto. Who knows what's going to happen? To have that extra depth guy that you can just slot into the lineup and trust and go, you've been there before. You can do it again. Play your game. That's just really helpful to have on any team especially in a year like this year and he's not a bad player like he's not a great hitter he's not gonna get you home runs but he's also not gonna strike out at every at bat he's gonna get on base and then he's gonna steal bases for you and that's what he's that's what he is specialized in basically he gets that single and then takes all the bases and that's and sometimes you need players like that but I think I think Jonathan Davis has a chance to to really be that role player on this team and fill out the lineup when he needs to and get get runs when he needs to. It's an interesting point you brought up that he trained with a running back coach. Like I love seeing players that identify their weaknesses and try to get stronger. But I think it's also important to look at a player who knows what they need to do to be a major league player, knows what they're good at and says, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I got to get to that elite level. It's a thing that I'm good at. And if Davis is going to be an elite level base stealer, 
he has to have the elite level speed. And there's something to be said about a player who looks at what they bring to the table and says, I'm going to get this to the next level because this is who I'm going to be in the lineup for this team. And not every player can look at themselves and say, this is what I need to do. Actually, a lot of players can't do that. You see a lot of guys in a lot of leagues in every sport have a hard time transitioning into not being the star or not doing whatever, coming out of a minor league. And it really is important to have guys who can be like, I think this is what I'm going to need to do in order to be successful. And they force themselves to use that to be more successful. Yeah. And what I like about Davis too, is that he's 29 and this year was sort of a, okay, I could just kind of retire and end by year, but he clearly saw like they brought in Springer. He went, Oh shit, my spot's gone. How can I stay playing? Because I'm not done yet. I still want to play this game and I've got years left. So what can I do to make sure that I can keep playing the game I love? And then he went to the NFL and said, you guys run fast. Show me. Like, I love that. Yeah, I think that's super important. And I also think that uh, learning from other sports is something that isn't given enough credit in today's sports landscape you hear about kids and they play their sport all year round they don't play any other sports I think there's lots of things to learn from other sports even as far as something like that simple like speed you can learn speed from someone other than another baseball player who's fast also an NFL player who doesn't see you as a threat to him at all might be more willing to help you than an elite-level speed baseball player who wants his spot on the roster so maybe isn't willing to give you the same tip. I think it's important for people to kind of branch out and find ways to improve by using things that people are learning in other sports. Yeah, and I think that's similar to like what we saw um, with Matthews and McDavid training together this summer for hockey. You can almost guarantee that those guys weren't going to each other and saying, oh, no, so this is what I do to improve my game. But then there's a lot of hockey players that would go to, say, like a figure skating coach to try and improve their skating, right? It's a similar idea to that where, yeah, another player might not give you their specific tricks, but if you go to another sport, then you gain a different edge than you would before. Yeah, and a different perspective, something that maybe not everyone in your league is going to know how to handle. It's been talked about a lot that Jeff Skinner was a figure skater and he's got really good edges. Obviously, that's not helping him this year, but at different times in his career, you've seen him do things on skates that you don't just see other NHL players do. And that allowed him some uh, open ice and some space that not everybody else has made him difficult to handle. I think in years to come, you're going to see parents and, and athletes developing Take a step back from this. If I want to be good at baseball, I'm going to play baseball 24-7 mentality. Yeah, and I think the that story about him going to the NFL is it's perfect that we end our Jays talk on that because our next conversation is going to be about the CFL and the XFL merging together. 
this was some big news that we got early or late last week that The Rock has gone to the CFL's CEO and said, hey, you're a struggling league. We're a struggling league. Why don't we team up? And that could have a big impact on the football world. Yeah, I'm, I got to say, as a Canadian, I'm a little bit scared. But I also want to see the CFL continue to be a thing. A lot of people don't know, but the Grey Cup is older than the Super Bowl. So I don't want to see the Grey Cup disappear. And I like to say that just because it does make Americans squirm a little bit that that our big trophy in football is older than theirs. Yep, coming up on 108 years this year. Yeah, so I think that's something to be said there. One of the big things I don't know about how this is going to work is for the Canadian players. I don't know what thoughts you have about that. Obviously, I'll let you dive into that in a second, but I'm a little bit worried that a Canadian football player who is making his living in the in the CFL, there's no longer going to be a spot for him if the Canadian player rules just dissipate entirely. Obviously, that makes Canadian players a little more valuable, allows them to get paid a little bit better wage. But there's so much talent as far as football players coming out of college that don't go to the NFL that if we decide that you don't need a minimum amount of Canadian players in this XFL-CFL hybrid, there's a lot of Canadian football players who are going to not really know where they're supposed to go next. That's really true. I hadn't even thought about that side of it. Yeah, I've been more focusing on, like, what the hell is the game going to look like. But, yeah, that's true. Like, the CFL does have a mandate of it has to have so many Canadian players, and there's a lot of guys out of Canadian colleges that come out of foot or cut up, come out of Canadian football programs and go into the CFL for that mandate. And they end up actually getting drafted fairly high because it's important to have good Canadian players that can fit within your lineup. So not only are they going to be a, a distinguished asset, but they're also not going to get the notoriety they get in the CFL because you're like, wow, this guy is a Canadian that's actually having an impact every night. Well, and I mean, on the on the flip side of that, though, opening it up to the XFL adds another eight teams. I think XFL has eight teams, right? Yeah, I, I do think you're right about that. So another eight teams means another 30 or 40 roster spots that need to be filled, right? I mean, obviously, the the teams already have their rosters right now, but the XFL hasn't played in two, two or three years, and they don't have the same history as the CFL. So a lot of those players, even more so than the CFL players, have either dropped off and stopped doing their training or this, that, and the other, right? And they just, they might not return to the game. Whereas a lot of these Canadian players that they have that whole history of the CFL, they know the CFL was going to come back. They've kept up their training. They've kept pushing themselves. So I think a lot of those XFL roster slots might get filled with CFL players. Yeah, that is a good point. I, I just be worried that there's a lot of people that think college football in the U.S. is better than the CFL. That's true. So I'd be, con- I'd be concerned that like every year there's a ton of guys that aren't going to the NFL 
that are available for both of these leagues. Yeah, I think that's part of the deal might be that they have to keep a certain amount of Canadian players. And I, I agree. I hope that is part of the deal because you do risk losing that that pathway for Canadian players to break into professional sports. And similar to what we were saying about women's sports, uh, not that it's nearly the same conversation, but football's not the biggest sport in, in Canada. So it's important for kids who are passionate about football to see people from where they are from being successful within football. So I, I hope that's not something we lose. No, I agree. So then I guess the, the other questions that I have that I guess will will eventually be answered as we get more information on this merger. But so right now, Canadian football has bigger ball, longer field, three downs, not four. What happens to that? And then how does the league shape up? Like, do they become like an ALNL sort of league like baseball has, where it's technically two separate leagues that just play together? Or do they completely merge and just become one league and rename all the teams and change the game entirely? Like, I, There's a lot of question marks that are still on the table, right? So that's actually something I kind of want to see. Is it become an ALNL type situation? And I think we talked over this uh, in the group chat this week when we were talking about doing this segment that that's something you kind of consider too. Uh, but I did hear a good point this week that they play at two different times. The XFL plays at the end of the NFL season, and the CFL plays throughout the NFL season. So one of those leagues would have to move their season, and I really don't think the XFL has much interest in trying to compete with the NFL. No. But maybe but, it would be better for the CFL to also not compete with the NFL and play – in the off season. Yeah, I th- I'm honestly, I'm on that side too. I, I'm starting to kind of consider that, that there are Canadian football fans who are probably drawn to the NFL who have CFL allegiances. But honestly, if their NFL team's on, they're probably watching that and not their CFL team. Yeah, I would assume so there's, there's more than just a few that are like that. Yeah, so I would like to see Maybe the CFL give give that a chance, but I would like to think that they probably considered that previously, and it obviously wasn't something they wanted to do, but this is a new opportunity, so hopefully they can take advantage of it. Well, and the other thing that I'm concerned about, too, is for a lot of years, the CFL has almost been looked at as a development league for the NFL. To a, to a certain extent, right? Like, they're looked at a le- as a lesser league. Like, a lot of players will go to CFL and then transition to NFL. So I'm curious if this merger will cut that narrative and have them try to be equal leagues, or if it's just going to push that narrative. Like, oh, here's all these NFL rejects. They can just go play in this other league that plays in the offseason sort of thing. I don't hate the idea of it being a development league. There isn't really minor league football similar to like the AHL or AAA or AA in baseball because of how high contact it is. You have practice squads, but they don't compete at the same high level and they don't play against other practice squads. 
um, because there's so many injuries in football. But I like the idea of it being a development league. I think there's probably players that get missed. We see lots of late bloomers in other sports. So I think this might actually be a better opportunity to be a development league. I don't necessarily know that they want to have affiliations to NFL teams, but I can see a lot of guys graduating and coming into the next level. Yeah, I think it's it's hard right now because the NFL, I mean, we, we see it every year around this time when it's free agency. NFL doesn't have the same style of development of players as any other league. Most NFL stars are a star in college and then they're a star through the league. There's not nearly as much, oh, you're pretty good, let's develop you and make you a star which we see in, in other leagues a lot with hockey, right? And, and a lot with baseball and, a, even, and more and more with basketball as well, where it's, oh, you've got potential, but let's let you cook in the minors for a little bit and marinate and grow as a player. Whereas the NFL really doesn't have that. They have, you're a star when you come out of college, so here's your chance, go to the NFL. If you falter, then, well, that's it you're off the off the radar. So I think you're right. Like it, it is a it could be a good chance for some of those guys that falter to regain their footing and make another push at the league. Yeah, I I 100% think that. I also think that the NFL might actually have to take a second and look at what these leagues are going to do. A lot of people make jokes about the NFL being the no fun league. I actually quite liked the XFL last year. Pretty entertaining. They did some cool stuff. Uh, when plays were under review, they actually took you up into the ref's room and let you hear the live conversation of why the play was going to be called one way or another. And the NFL has so many debates on whether this call or that call was right. I really like that. As, as a more casual football fan than, than a lot of my buddies who live and die by the NFL, I really like being able to hear their explanations of why, why this happened or why they were going to make this call or what was going to happen next uh, based on this play. Yeah, that is really cool. I didn't watch any XFL last year, but that sounds like a really cool concept. And yeah, it gives like from a TV perspective, it gives the viewers an opportunity to see a different side of the sport that they've never really seen before. Yeah. And I also think the XFL was a little bit bigger last year than, than people are giving it credit for. I was in St. Louis at this time last year and the amount of St. Louis Battlehawk stuff I saw at bars and, on the side of the road and shirts and commercials on TV. I couldn't believe it. That's a market that doesn't have an NFL team. And they really embraced the XFL. So I think uh, a lot of people are seeing it as a gimmick league, like some of the other football leagues that are out there. And I don't really think that it is. I think that it was actually having a real big impact last year and it got railroad COVID. Yeah, I agree. I think it it's it's better now that Vince McMahon is not at the helm because I think that 
really made people look at the league and go, oh no, it's just like a, it's like the WWE. It's all for entertainment. It's not like legitimate sport. It's all just these people going out and having fun and trying to do something creative. Whereas now with legitimate business people and legitimate football people and the rock as the face of the company, it gives the league a little bit more legitimacy. Whereas under Vince McMahon, it really didn't have that. It was more of a Vince McMahon going, I have money. Let's start football. I think that's partially just bad perception of the fans. So I did hear Vince McMahon talk about it a little bit. And he did have some really good business points about the XFL, about how there were some big markets that didn't have football, that were football towns, and how there are so many college players who played at a high level who were, you know, ending up at uh, the cook at your local bar or working construction. There were actually multiple players in the XFL last year who talked about you know, that they were working road work six months before they heard about this league and they started training and decided that they were going to give professional football one more chance. So I think the WWE kind of gave Vince McMahon this weird perception in the media, but I think he really was trying to do something legitimate. And I think uh, just based on what he's done previously, people had perceptions about it that weren't necessarily true. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I personally did. I thought about it like that, that it was just a, a pet project of Vince McMahon of him just trying to be the, like it, it was basically another way to stroke his ego. Yeah. I remember sitting in the garage talking with my buddies about the XFL and my one buddy is a huge football fan and, He's a Bengals fan in the NFL, so I was teasing him that he might as well pick an XFL team and maybe they'd actually win and he'd be able to get excited about it. But we were legitimately talking about how many XFL players would end up being WWE superstars in the future <laughs> just based on their fitness level and, and their brute size and all these other things that really it was like minor league wrestling, not minor league football. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the perception that the XFL had for the first few years of its start, right? And it's not until at least last year and the past couple of years where they've started to change that perception, I think. Yeah, honestly, I hate to say it, but I was a bit of an XFL fan when it all ended last year. I was getting into it. I was trying to know the players. I hadn't necessarily picked a team yet because... I obviously they weren't really close to us, so I was trying to just pick a team that I that I was going to enjoy watching, and I hadn't found one yet. But I was having a lot of fun watching the league, and I found that they had a lot more conversations. So as a guy who wasn't a football super fan, I was learning way faster than I ever learned watching an NFL game, because they knew that they were maybe getting some fans who hadn't had an NFL team in a while who maybe needed a little bit of a refresher on football. And it kind of kept me more engaged. I, I love the stats of any football. I love prospect developer of any sport. And I love prospect development in any sport. And they were really talking about those things. And it really caught my imagination and sucked me into the league. 
That being said, though, I still have a lot of concerns as a proud Canadian that this might not be the best thing for the CFL. The CFL's tried American expansion before, and uh, the American teams didn't have a minimum amount of Canadians, and they tended to dominate. So I'm a little concerned about that. Yeah, it almost has to be equal across the league if you're going to set that rule in place. Which I, I don't think they would be willing to do that. I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that even though The Rock got cut from the CFL, that he has a little bit of a soft spot for it. The Rock might have a little bit of appreciation for the history of the CFL and not try to stomp it out and rewrite something else. I think it's important to come together but build on the pre-existing history of the CFL. I honestly, people go on about how the NFL is is so great and this and that, but I'm a little bit of a believer that there is room for another football league and that there's enough things that the CFL does that even their fan base doesn't necessarily agree with then maybe there's room for them to actually be the best league. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think there's room for a second league. And I really think that The Rock will do the CFL justice in this merger. I mean, for one, I don't think the CFL is going to let him completely change things. Like, he's not the CEO of both leagues now, right? Like, it is still a partnership. But I think he he's definitely going to be the face of the league. and. I'm okay with that because in any of the press conferences or media availability that he's done since they announced that they were working on a partnership, he's really said, like, I really appreciate my time in the CFL and it really helped me grow and this, that, and the other. And he, he's really shown a lot of a lot of love towards how the CFL works in an organizational capacity. So I'm hoping that he will maintain that, like you said, and, and do it justice. And if we lose the CFL, I just want it on the podcast, and I'm going to blame the Canadian government a little bit. We've supported a lot of businesses throughout COVID, and I think the CFL has some historic value for Canada, and I think it's a real shame that we couldn't find a way to, to step up and support them a little more than we did. I don't necessarily think that maybe they should have got all the money they were asking for, but I think they should have got something. And yeah. Canadians are a super proud sports country, and it's a real shame that we couldn't protect something that means this much to who we are as Canadians. Yeah, I agree with that. And I will say, too, I got to give you credit because in our, I think the first week that we did Lock in or Left Field, we asked, will the CFL still be a league? next year and you said it was a lost cause i said it was a lock that they would still continue and it's looking like you might be right here and i gotta give you credit for that because i really i don't think it's uh it's playing out the way you expected but you're still right in the fact that they might not be a league next year i i love being right i think that's one of the <laughs> Things that everyone's going to figure out listening to the podcast, but I'll be honest, I really didn't want to be right about this. Well, no, but I think if you're going to be right about this, 
this is the best way to be right about this. It's not like the league is just folding. It's just changing. It's growing in a different way and might not be called the CFL anymore, but it's still going to be a football league. It just might not be the Canadian Football League anymore. Yeah, I think that's important uh, that, that it's still going to exist. I'm going to continue calling it the Canadian Football League because the XFL has, you know, been here and been gone. So I believe in the Canadian Football League and hopefully we can just take over the name and continue to expand. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably still call it the Canadian Football League as well, at least for a few years. So speaking about uh, locked under left field, why don't we move into some of that? All right, that sounds great. Um, I uh, saw some of the questions you put up last night, so I'm actually excited to uh, to talk about that today. Uh, so I'll start off with the first question, which I don't even really need to to give any preface for it. I think most hockey fans know the line of thinking I'm going with this question, so. Will Eichel return to Buffalo next year? <laughs> so I have that as a lost cause. Eichel is an elite level player, and he's just showing me that he looks like Ryan O'Reilly right now. He's just lost his passion for the game. Hopefully he can do the Ryan O'Reilly thing, get traded, go somewhere, win a con smite. Uh, I have a buddy that I hang out with a lot that's a huge Sabres fan. He's a huge Jack Eichel guy. I think everyone knows that he's an elite-level player, but there is something going on there. They need to just get rid of all their players and start fresh. There is something going on with that culture, and it is so bad, I don't even know where you start. They have a lot of players that if I was a GM, I'd want on my team, but somehow that mix just doesn't work. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a lost cause. I think they... The Sabres are at a point where they really have to, and it's unfortunate because they started a rebuild and then never finished it, but I think they have to strip it back to the studs again because it just didn't work out. They started their rebuild at about the same time the Leafs started our rebuild, and you can see clearly one team found the right pieces, the other team just didn't make the connection between all the all the pieces. So yeah, I think... I think Buffalo really has to strip it down to the studs and start over. And I think that means getting rid of Jack Eichel and maybe some other pieces and maybe trying to build around some of the young guys that they have right now, like Olafson, and try and push their development. I think it also means they need to change some of the organization around them as well. I think they just got a new GM, but he was thrown into a gong show. So he hasn't really had a chance to put his stamp on the team at all. I think that stripping away some of the players and giving their new GM a chance to build from scratch might just have to be the answer. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm also a little bit worried when you have a rookie GM, it seems like being a GM has a lot to do with your connections in the league. And being a rookie GM, I just don't think that guy has has the rapport with all the other GMs. And when you got to tear that team down, you got to get return on some of those assets. And if I'm the Sabres, I'm a little bit worried that we're not going to get a very good return on our assets because our guy just doesn't have the rapport that 
uh, Jim Rutherford or Brian Burks has with the other guys in the league. Yeah, and I think a lot of that, uh, I'm stealing this point directly from overdrive. I'll be I'll be transparent about that, but comes down to the fact that they didn't give him any assistant general manager. They just like their the ownership said, "You're our guy. Go and do it." And he, as a rookie, you almost need an assistant general manager that has been around the league, that's an older guy that has those connections that can help you out and say, if you go to this team, they're willing to do this or whatever, right? Like, it really does come down to needing to have those connections and not having an assistant general manager doesn't help the situation at all. So uh, taking a step away from hockey, but continuing into our conversations from today, do you think Charlie Montoya continues uh, all the way through this extension that he just took uh, with the Jays and continues to be their manager in the future? I've got that one as a lock. They He signed the extension through to the end of 2022, so this season and next season. And I can't see the Jays either faltering so hard that they need to get rid of him or doing so well in the next couple of seasons that management feels the need to bring in a more experienced guy. I think they're in a good place right now with Montoyo in the sense that he's a smart guy, but he's also a guy that that has a really good rapport with the team. It seems like they get along, they have a lot of fun, he's good with the young guys, and I think that's going to be what keeps him around is just that that relationship with the team. I think it's if they get rid of him, when these young guys are just getting into their prime, then the young guys aren't going to be happy about it. I think you're hitting the nail on the head with that. I also think it's a lock. I think he has a lot to do with the culture. We were just talking about how important that is. And he seems like a great guy to instill the correct culture in all the young players the Jays have right now. Yeah, that's. I remember watching the press conference and when he first got hired was it last year or two years ago? And at first I was like, well, who the hell is this guy? I know nothing about him. And then he came out in the press conference and was all smiles and happy and laughing with the media and just having a good time. And I was like, all right, I like him. I'm sold. Like, I, I love having that kind of attitude, even as a fan in, in a sports organization. It just makes it more fun to watch because you know the players are having fun doing what they're doing. I also think that's a great indicator on how well he's handling the Toronto media. And it'll be a great indicator for Blue Jays management in the future. If he starts losing that attitude, he comes out there and he's he's arguing with reporters or giving them a tough time, I think his time might be passed. But if he can go in there and have that attitude and consistently de-escalate the Toronto media and make maybe our dark times not seem so dark and our highs not seem so high just by looking like he's just out there playing baseball, having a good time. He'll be a great fit for Toronto. I also think it's a huge, uh, like I said, indicator. If he starts being a and starts having some real issues with the media, that'll be a really good indicator that maybe his time as the manager of the Blue Jays has started to go by. Yep. So sticking with the Blue Jays, uh, Nate Pearson was a guy that we talked about last week a little bit, 
and he's had injury problems in the past. This spring training, he's pulled his groin again, and he's not starting the season with the in the lineup for the second year in a row. Do you think that his glass groin and his glass body seems to be hampered with injuries all, injuries all the time is going to put a damper on his entire career? So I actually have this as unlikely because I think Toronto's been kind of unfair to him. We got him where we got him because of injury concerns. And then he performed really well and stayed healthy. And his expectations have shot through the roof. But there's a reason we got Nate Pearson where we got him in the draft. And injuries are exactly that reason. So I think the expectations have gotten really high. Because he obviously has some really pretty intangibles. But the reality of the situation is you got the guy because of injury concerns. So to expect him to never have an injury again once he's a major league guy, it's just unrealistic. I'd like to see him maybe continue to pursue being a starter. But if he has those injury concerns, the one thing about baseball is he's got the calf. Move him in. Let him be a reliever. He might be a long-term reliever. Maybe he can pitch multiple innings as a reliever. He's got that high-level speed, so he can definitely transition into the bullpen. But I think the Jays need to do their due diligence on making sure he cannot be a starter first because he has the ability to really maybe be an ace for the Blue Jays in the future if he gets his health in order because he has a lot of stuff to offer uh, as far as his ability to throw the ball. So I've got this one as a likely. I think that the injuries will hamper his career a little bit. I I can't help but look back to a guy like Joffrey Lupel, who was just made of glass, was a great, highly skilled player, just was never in the lineup because he was hurt all the time. And it, it really does, it hurts the player's confidence and it just, you can't keep developing as a player when you're not playing, right? When you're hurt all the time, it's really hard to push yourself because as soon as you push yourself, you get hurt again. And I really worry about that with Nate Pearson. I hope that he's able to work past these injuries and and find a stride as either a starter or, like you said, as a reliever, that could be a great option for him. But I just don't know if it's happening. I think that it really could hurt his career. Uh, just because I've been looking forever for a reason to bring this up in the podcast, is the best opportunity I'm probably ever going to have. If you're having a bad day, scroll through the likes on Joffrey Lupel's Twitter from his time as a Leaf, and he just likes all these tweets of people ripping him, telling him he's made of glass, telling him that he could be their favorite player if he could pull it together. It honestly cracks me up. It used to make my day all the time in high school and if you haven't seen it you really should do yourself a favor and and check it out the guy just likes all these tweets that are absolutely ripping him for his career and his injuries and this and that and you just gotta give the guy credit for having a little bit of humor about his situation that's funny i might have to look that up because that's that's good i love guys that don't take themselves too seriously on on social media that are willing to go to the trolls and just be like, yep, sure. 
and, and like their stuff and stuff like that. Like, it's great. I love when players do that. Honestly, I was a big fan of the guy before someone told me about this, and it's just gotten better and better ever since. Did you have any Raptors-related locked-ons that you wanted to go through? So I actually did. Um, the biggest one has been a lot of topic today. Uh, do you think that the Raptors, knowing that Norman Powell's been playing at such a high level and probably won't take his option on the contract for this year, do you think that they should move him based on what's been happening in the slide that they've been in? Hmm. See, that's a really hard one because I think the problem is if you move him and you move Lowry, you tip the scales to a point where you're full rebuild mode. Whereas if you keep Powell and you just move Lowry, if you're able to keep Powell and he's willing to take the option, which, yeah, I agree, it sounds like he's not, then you still have a chance to just retool. But moving both of those guys, you start a full rebuild, I think. Uh, I'm going to go that it's likely that they move him just because he it doesn't sound like he's going to be taking the option and it sounds like he's going to walk anyway. So why not get what you can get for him and try and progress that rebuild a little bit, try and speed it up a bit. So I actually have it as likely as well. I don't think it's impossible to get him to resign and be a Raptor. I just think he's playing out of his mind and we haven't seen this from him very consistently. We've seen it in a lot of spurts. And right now is the optimum spurt for him to get paid. And in that same breath, it's the optimum spurt for the Raptors to really be able to get something out of his value. He's playing great right now. It doesn't seem to matter how the rest of the Raptors are playing. He's out there having an impact. I, I do disagree with you a little bit. I don't think they're necessarily going right into a rebuild if they get rid of him and Lowry. I don't think he is necessarily a core piece. Like, I see the core pieces as Van Fleet, OG, Siakam. And I see him as more of a tertiary piece. So if you can get a a large amount of value for him, I think it might be the right time to do that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I wouldn't say he's a tertiary piece. I'd say maybe he's a secondary piece. Like, I would say the tertiary pieces are like the Terrence Davis and Malachi Flynn, who could even, you could argue he's secondary right now. But the problem with, with that is that guys like Terrence Davis, who if you're going to start throwing guys overboard like Norman Powell and Kyle Lowry, you need those guys to perform. And we've seen over this stretch where a lot of guys were out with the, on COVID, Terrence Davis didn't perform. So... I don't know if they've got the right pieces in the locker room right now to try and build around other than those core three guys. Yeah, I think Terrence Davis, I, I'm I'm not sold on him as a long-term Raptor anymore. No, I wanted uh, to be. I wanted to be. He's got some off-court distractions, obviously. I don't want to go too much into that because I don't necessarily have all the info, so I don't think that's super fair. But one of the things I've heard from multiple people uh, talking about the Raptors is that he had a big relationship with Serge Ibaka, and Serge Ibaka was pushing him 
to do all the right things to be a pro. And I think it's notable that he's regressed since Serge Baca has left. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't know if we did this one, so I'm just going to do a quick check. Okay, so we've done some Lowry questions before, but I don't think we've actually had this conversation. Is Lowry the greatest Raptor of all time? Yep, that's a lock. No question about that in my mind, I think. He's, like, statistically, I maybe not. I don't really know for sure. I don't know some of the older Raptor statistics, but just based on perception of the team and the amount that this team has grown with Lowry on the team and winning the championship really puts a feather in his cap. And I think, yeah, he, I can confidently say in my mind, he's the greatest Raptor of all time. So that's a lock. So I've seen a lot of people on our Twitter saying that he's the groat, which actually cracks me up (laughs) mostly because it sounds kind of gross. Like groat sounds like something that you find under your fridge if you don't clean it often enough but i also think it's a lock uh when we were doing a little bit of a deep dive on him going to the hall of fame last week he doesn't lead the raptors in all statistical categories actually doesn't lead them in a ton of statistical categories but he's in like the top three of every important statistical category If I remember correctly, he's actually in the top five in rebounds, and he's a point guard, and he's an undersized point guard at that. So the guy just does everything all over the court, and there hasn't been another Raptor that's plain and simple been here long enough to get that title. Yeah, I agree. I would totally agree with that. Um, So keeping on basketball, why don't we move into our players of the week, and I can kick us off with mine all right sounds good my player of the week this week is going to be Karis Levere. he's just coming back from getting the cancerous tumor removed from his kidney it was a big shock when they found it and it's good that they found it when they did with the Oladipo trade during his physical but that meant that the Pacers were without him even after the trade for what was it has it been like two two months give or take now I think Yeah. So he came back the other day playing against the Suns. First game back, got 13.7 rebounds, and the team got the win. Second game back against the Nuggets, he got 17 points and two rebounds, brought the team to the win. And then the third game back was last night against the Nets. They took the loss, but Karis LeVere got 19 points and five assists. So he's clearly one game to the next improved on his point scoring and he's pushing the Pacers back into the playoff question. They're right now they're intense in the East. They're only two games back from being in the playoffs behind the Bulls. And he's really giving the team a light to look at to go, look, we're not out of it yet. We could still make the playoffs. So I think it's a great story when you hear a guy that goes through something like that, come back into the game, and the fact that he's playing well and having a real big impact on his team, that makes him my player of the week. Yeah, I think he's a great player of the week. I think we've made a good point in the podcast that we love the story. We talked about how Bobby Ryan made our all-star team 
uh, not too long ago because we love this story, we love this character. I think this is just another testament to that. And I think we're going to continue that as a theme of the podcast moving forward. So it's good that we're kind of working with that. My player of the week this week, despite the Leafs fan and me being a little bit bitter about it, is Nikolai Ehlers. So he's had a great season and he's really taken off uh, on a line with Pierre-Luc Dubois. He had six points against the Leafs. Uh, He single-handedly won the the one game. Well, him him and Halebuck. He's really uh, been stepping up his game. He seems to play great against Nylander. He was picked right after Nylander, so I think there's a little bit of a rivalry going on there because Nylander was also playing great uh, during those games. The Mooseheads are my QMJHL team that I that I have a little bit of a soft spot for, so he's had a great week. Uh, former Moosehead, really coming in clutch for Winnipeg, so Nikolai Ehlers is my player of the week. He's having a great year. He's only getting better. Winnipeg Jets are having a great season, really showing that they're the second best, if not the best team in the North Division, and he's a big part of that. Everyone thought there was going to be a huge hole in their offense, losing line A. I think they had a lot of depth offensively that was kind of being slapped on by the league, and it's showing right now. And like I said, Nikolai Ehlers is a big part of that, and that's what makes him my player of the week. Yeah, I think that's a great pick for player of the week. Ehlers has been on fire this year and even more than other years. Like normally he's a guy that I always try and pick on my fantasy team if I can. And this year he's just been even better. So uh, great player of the week. All right. So that's episode nine. We're glad that you listened this week. Uh, we're gaining some consistent followers. Uh, we're going to shout out Gavin Moore this week as one of our big listeners. Uh, we're going to try to shout out someone whenever we can remember who's been consistently listening, giving us feedback on the podcast. We really hope you've been enjoying what we've been doing, and uh, I've been having a lot of fun doing this, and I think I can speak for both of us saying that. So I hope you really enjoyed episode nine, and I can't wait to talk to you next week. Yeah, make sure you give us a follow, interact with us on Twitter, at TFanalysts. If you interact with us enough, we'll notice your name. You'll probably get a shout out. Also follow us on Instagram at the Fanalist Podcast and check us out on YouTube at the Fanalist. Thanks for listening. Have a good week. <laughs>